0: What is up, EWU crew? Today, we are covering five solved murders. The first story begins with 79-year-old Beverly Bobrick, a kind soul who touched many people's lives in her community. As a devout Christian and the president of her church's women's group, she was beloved by all who knew her. Although she lived alone after her husband passed away, She always had the company of her loyal dog, Pepe. Neighbors knew her routine well. Every Sunday morning, like clockwork, the first thing on Beverly's schedule was coming outside to pick up her newspaper. So when the morning of September 11th, 2005 went by and the day's paper remained untouched in front of the elderly woman's house, they started to get concerned. A group gathered to check up on their neighbor and make sure that everything was all right. They knocked on the door. Nothing, not even a bark, which was strange. Reassuring themselves that maybe Beverly and her dog had just gone out to run errands or were on a trip of some kind, they hurried to check the garage. But they knew something was wrong the moment they saw her car still parked inside. Beginning to panic, they strained to see inside the windows and doors, desperately attempting to catch a glimpse inside the eerily silent home. As soon as the group reached the back of the residence, their hearts immediately dropped. Not only had a large window been forced wide open, but the screen behind it was pushed in. From what they could see of the home's interior, Beverly's belongings and furniture were completely ransacked. And then... Upon closer inspection, their worst fears were confirmed. Beverly lay lifeless on the floor of her bedroom, and Pepe, who most likely perished trying to defend his owner, was beside her. When the police saw Beverly's wounds, they said that the significant trauma to her head, as well as multiple defensive wounds, painted them a clear picture of the attack. Only one month after the murder, A man was arrested from a string of recent local burglaries. His name was Brian Vincent Stoll, and he lived merely two blocks from Beverly's household. Stoll was 19 years old at the time, and his crimes seemed to have a target demographic—the elderly. Specifically, he would wait until their homes were unoccupied and then loot the place, stealing valuables, cash, and prescription drugs. Maybe he hadn't expected Beverly to be at home during his intrusion, but all the same, it wasn't uncharacteristic of him to become violent when his robberies were interrupted by the homeowner. Due to his proximity to Beverly and his known criminal methodology, he was an obvious prime suspect in her murder, especially since weeks before her passing, her house had been broken into while unoccupied. $80 had been stolen from her, along with some medicine, which deputies say must have been Stoll's doing as well. In 2006, Stoll confessed to numerous violent break-ins and was sentenced to 23 years in prison. Even with all their cause for suspicion, the police simply didn't have enough evidence at the time to prove Stoll was the perpetrator. So the case went cold. But, 14 years later, a single hair follicle they had collected at the crime scene would finally provide the breakthrough needed to put an end to Beverly's case, once and for all. DNA analysis was evolving, and after years of trying, investigators were able to match that one strand of hair to Stoll. However, the police emphasized that this hair was not their sole piece of evidence against Stoll. Over the years, many local witnesses have come forward and shared their disturbing accounts of actually seeing Stoll and an accomplice on the day he had murdered Beverly. Multiple people gave accounts of witnessing the men disposing of tainted garments. Stoll even had the audacity to tell other people publicly that he had just murdered an old woman and her dog. 34-year-old Brian Stoll broke into Bobrick's home through a back window when he was 19 and beat Bobrick and her dog to death. Stoll is a convicted criminal serving 23 and a half years for break-ins and theft around that time with similar M.O.s. As 2019 drew to a close, so did Beverly's convoluted case. If Stoll, now age 34, was hoping to get out of jail after serving half of his 23-year sentence from 2006... That option was out the door when he was finally charged with first-degree premeditated murder. Thankfully, Beverly's loved ones were able to get justice and closure after 14 long years of waiting. Now, our next murder case is of Adam Brundage. From 2004 to 2020, a man named Damon Smoot, Brundage's roommate and friend, lived a comfortable life. He stayed in a very nice house and drove an expensive car. He seemed to have it all, but these things didn't belong to him. He told people his old roommate had gifted these assets to him, but that was far from the truth. In reality, Smoot had been freeloading off his friend's property, whom he had viciously murdered in a jealous rage, and he got away with it For 16 years. Before Smoot's attack, victim Adam Brundage had been a father of two children. He was only 26 years old, but was able to provide for his kids with the help of a $150,000 inheritance his father had left him after his passing, $80,000 of which he used for a down payment on a house in Quakertown where he could live comfortably. His ex-girlfriend and mother of his children would visit occasionally. One day, he met a man named Damon Smoot through mutual friends, and the two eventually became roommates. Brundage had no idea that this man he let into his home would soon show his true colors. On October 4th, 2004, Smoot and Brundage drove together to Haynes and Kibble House Quarry, Brundage needed to pick up some sand for a home repair project he was working on, and Smoot just happened to be employed at the quarry as a heavy equipment operator. But their friendly trip would soon turn sour. The two began to bicker over money issues. Smoot, overcome with jealousy about his friend's sudden financial gain. Finally, he snapped. Retrieving a baseball bat from his vehicle... He struck an unsuspecting Brundage in the back of the head. After a struggle, he was dead. Smoot then disposed of his friend's remains in a nearby sand berm. After that night, Smoot couldn't seem to get his story straight. Whether it was the police or Brundage's own family questioning him, he seemed to make up a new reason for his roommate's disappearance. At first, he claimed he was only driving the car while Brundage was traveling then said the young father had skipped town to avoid paying child support and later accused Brundage of leaving the area to escape an arrest warrant. As the days went on, his excuses only became more outrageous as he continued lying straight to the faces of his victim's family. Smoot eventually became tangled in a web of his own lies. And his reign of terror didn't end there. Somehow, he managed to evade being convicted for Brundage's murder for over 15 years, but was sentenced for five to 10 years in prison in 2012, after kidnapping, assaulting, and threatening to murder his ex-girlfriend. When Brundage's cold case finally reopened in January of 2020, Smoot agreed to lead investigators to the spot where he had buried the remains in return for a lighter sentence. As part of this deal, he finally shared the chilling story of what he had done to Brundage that night. Damon Smoot was jealous of Adam Brundage, who had come into a small but sizable inheritance. And in his jealousy, he wanted to become him. He wanted the things that Adam had and that Adam had access to. So he killed him. He pleaded guilty to third-degree murder, and is currently facing a sentence of only 20 to 40 years. The third murder case is of Debbie Dorian, whose case remained cold for 24 years. Debbie was smart and hardworking. She maintained a job as a waitress while working towards her economics degree at Fresno State University. Those who knew her described her as beautiful and energetic the type of young lady who brings a smile to the face of everyone she meets. She was close to her family and had been planning a trip with her father for some time. They agreed to meet at his house the night before their departure so they could head out together. But when the day came, Debbie was a no-show. Her father knew she wasn't the type of person to flake out or forget plans. So he called her place of employment asking when the last time they saw her was. To his dismay, they reported that Debbie had neglected to show up for her shift the previous day. Her father rushed to her apartment. The ominous signs were adding up, and Debbie's boyfriend was out of town for work, meaning she was all alone in her tiny apartment. Upon reaching Debbie's residence, the crime scene her father walked into would be forever burned into his mind. Not only were the victim's hands and feet bound together by duct tape, but the adhesive material was wrapped around her face. Authorities would later determine that the cause of her demise was the duct tape blocking her airways. It was August 22nd, 1996, when Debbie's remains were discovered. But her autopsy suggested that she had passed away a full 48 hours before that. The police were able to recover a bodily fluid sample to use for DNA testing, but they couldn't find a match to their disappointment. When their search turned up fruitless, they were left with a discouraging conclusion. The killer was not in their database. In other words, this dangerous man was still out there, posing a threat to other young women in the area. And from 1996 to 2002... A string of physical assaults popped up in Visalia that all followed a similar pattern in which young women would be attacked by a man shielding his face with an article of clothing while he assaulted them. The police suspected that the same nameless, faceless man was responsible for Debbie's demise and that she had been his first victim in the string that would follow. However, for some unknown reason, Debbie was the only victim that was murdered. In 2002, a girl was assaulted at a bus stop in Visalia by a man with a gun, and the DNA from that attack was finally matched with the sample from Debbie's file. Even so, it wasn't until 2018 that a DNA analysis advancement called genetic genealogy was introduced and provided the big breakthrough needed. This technology was able to identify the culprit who had been the common thread between all the Visalia assaults, and his name is Nicky Stain. Although he is now divorced, during the span of Stain's late 1990s and early 2000s crimes, he had tried to show that he lived a normal life. His wife and children had no idea of the insidious activities he got up to in his free time. And Stain somehow managed to uphold his two distinct personalities without getting caught, like some kind of modern Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But now, the truth has come out. Nikki Stain is every woman's nightmare. He appears to be a regular person, and he is a predator uh, who has terrorized women throughout this valley. And Stain's days of masquerading are over. He was charged with the full extent of his crimes and is now eligible for life without parole and possibly capital punishment. The next case began when Renee Pagel was found lifeless in her driveway on August 5th, 2006, after what looked like multiple stab wounds. All eyes immediately turned to her husband, Michael Pagel, since the two were in the process of getting a divorce and Renee had expressed to her close friends that she was growing increasingly wary of her husband's temper and wrathful anger. Besides, there were no signs of forced entry to the home and no valuables had been stolen. Despite all these red flags, there was no substantial evidence to charge Pagel. Renée's community in Cortland Township, Michigan, grieved the loss of such a wonderful woman. As a local school teacher, she was described as being a light in many people's lives. She had even given her kidney to the father of one of her students. She was just that type of person, giving and kind to the very end. In fact, one of the reasons that she may have been helpless to her attacker was because she was still recovering from the kidney donation. As the years went by and Renee's case went cold, Michael moved with his and Renee's three children to a different county for a fresh start. It wasn't until almost 14 years after her untimely passing that authorities were able to arrest Michael on the grounds of incriminating statements he had made about his wife. One of these being journal entries detailing his hatred towards her. But authorities say that it was not ultimately a novel breakthrough that led to the closing of this long case, but rather a simple re-examination of old evidence, combined with the fact that Michael had really been their one and only suspect for 14 years. However, even now, Michael is shifting the blame Onto someone else, his own brother. According to Michael, he did conspire with his brother Charles and planned out to pay Charles to do the deed. But Michael maintains that it was Charles in the end who actually committed the murder. He has used the alibi that he was at his mother's house at the time of the murder. And this excuse played a crucial role in his ability to escape conviction all these years. It seems that the two brothers may have purposefully executed the crime in this way to confound the police, because it presented them with the conflicting conclusions of the killer being someone who lived in a home, while the only adult who lived there had a solid alibi. It remains to be determined how the court will react to Michael's new story. But regardless of how he tries to avoid responsibility, he has already been charged with with first degree murder. Luckily, two of his three children are already adults, but that doesn't make it any easier for them to come to terms with the fact that they have been living with their mother's murderer this whole time. This arrest marks the end of the investigation in the beginning of a courtroom drama that many have been waiting, even praying for. But whether the arrest is good news depends on who you talk to. Authorities say that Michael likely manipulated them over the years trying to make them take his side. Our final story is of a bright young woman, Kelsey Smith. She was only 18 years old and had just graduated high school in her hometown of Overland Park, Kansas. The coming fall, she planned to go to college and she was excited to show her school spirit by becoming a member of her university's marching band. Family and friends knew she was a go-getter and could do anything she set her mind to. However, Kelsey's life would tragically be cut short before she ever got the chance to achieve these goals. On the night of June 2nd, 2007, Kelsey was wandering through her local Target, excitedly searching the shelves for a gift. Her six-month anniversary with her boyfriend was approaching and like any teenage girl in love, She was taking this occasion very seriously, searching for the perfect present. She chatted on the phone with her mom while she shopped, catching up and discussing what Kelsey should buy. She was having a great time, but because all of her attention was focused on the task at hand, she was completely unaware that a man was stalking her through the store aisles. She wrapped up her phone call with her mom as she finally checked out, and entered the dark parking lot around 7 p.m. Her house was only eight minutes from the target, so when 7.30 rolled by with no sign of Kelsey, her parents began to fret. Her father worked in law enforcement and enforced strict household rules when it came to obeying curfew and responding to texts and calls. After frantically trying to reach their daughter, Mr. and Mrs. Smith knew... They couldn't wait any longer, and reported Kelsey missing. A few hours later, the police found Kelsey's vehicle across the street from the Target store. Strangely, none of her belongings had been stolen, but Kelsey herself was nowhere to be found. Mr. Smith's law enforcement experience meant he knew just what kind of twisted minds were out there and he did everything in his power to find his daughter, knowing well that any time wasted could be fatal. Once authorities checked the surveillance footage in Target, they saw him. A young man had very obviously been following Kelsey with every turn she made in the store. He was watching her from afar, but when she got ready to check out, he exited the building. And that's where the footage ended. Kelsey's parents demanded that her cell phone company release her recent location information so that investigators could better triangulate an approximate area to search. But they were turned down, the phone company claiming that they did not have the legal right to do so. A determined FBI agent managed to reason with the Verizon worker. After doing some serious convincing, the employee finally conceded. Upon receiving this crucial information, investigators immediately searched the area where Kelsey's cell had last pinged, a remote forest in Missouri, and there they found her remains, lifeless and discarded in the woods. As the days went by, investigators made a bold choice. They released the security camera footage of the perpetrator to be displayed on news broadcasts. Soon, they were flooded with thousands of tips. After some digging, one of these tips finally led them to the culprit, a 26-year-old man named Edwin Hall. A neighbor had recognized Hall's pickup truck from the surveillance footage and alerted the authorities. But when the police arrived at Hall's residence to arrest him, he was packing his things preparing to leave on vacation with his wife and child. While looking into the suspect, officials unearthed a sinister history. His MySpace interests included eating small children and harming animals. He had also threatened his sister in the past and got in trouble for hitting another boy with a baseball bat. They had the footage, the evidence of past violence, so they were almost there. But the police couldn't quite pin the crime on Hall yet. That is, until they matched the fingerprints. Indeed, fingerprints that had been recovered from Kelsey's car the night of her disappearance were perfectly matched to Edwin Hall. Police are searching for an 18-year-old girl who was carjacked and abducted on Saturday. Authorities now have surveillance video from outside a department store that shows Kelsey Smith being forced into her own car. She hasn't been seen since. Cops found the vehicle at a shopping mall two hours after the initial incident, but Smith, along with her cell phone and ATM card, had gone missing. I'm so, so sorry for what I've done. That's it. That's all I can say. I don't know whether it was sincere or not. But kind of like everybody said in their statements, it it really doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. The criminal was then convicted of assault and murder. However, he accepted a plea deal in which he confessed to the whole crime in return for escaping the capital punishment. His story is harrowing to say the least. To begin with, Hall thought that she was 12 years old when he first saw her. He had been milling around the area all day searching for a distracted or oblivious young girl to kidnap. And Kelsey just happened to be his unlucky victim. When he left the store before her, it had been to grab his gun out of his car before lurking in the shadows until Kelsey came out of the store. And that's when he threw her in the car. Upon searching Hall's house, a disturbing Celtic shrine was found in his basement. And this matched up with the eerie, Pentagon-like shape that he had made with sticks and branches over Kelsey's remains. As tragic as Kelsey's story is, her parents have been advocating for the Kelsey Smith Act, which allows law enforcement to receive cell phone information from phone companies to expedite cases when a person is missing and in harm's way. If you enjoyed this video, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. A playlist is going to pop up right now with more videos you'll love. See you guys next time.